This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester program we are reviewing the new documentary cessationism it's gonna be an exciting program you guys stay tuned you are watching the remnant radio a show where we tackle history theology and the gifts of the spirit my name is joshua lewis i'm the pastor of king's fellowship in ada oklahoma together with my friends michael miller at reclamation church denver and michael roundtree at bridgeway church okc We set aside time every week to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like, how should we pray for the sick? And and how do we interpret tongues? And should we believe all the prophetic words for the new year? If you're looking for a charismatic podcast with practitioners who are actually doing the stuff, this is the show for you. Well, we've got a couple of charismatic teachers, right, Miller? Charismatic teachers who uh, are going to be discussing the documentary cessationism out of respect for our friends over there who made the cessationist film. We're not going to be showing long clips. They worked a lot on this documentary. We're going to be showing like 30-second clips, 60-second clips, real short. Uh, But we're going to go through quite a few. So in this program, we're going to go through as many as we can. I've got eight queued up right now. Uh, But I would expect this is going to be a series, not just because uh, they've, you know, made a lot of arguments about cessationism, uh, but frankly, they've just teed up arguments for us to knock down because they're just not that good. Uh, And I don't mean that as a jab. I don't mean that to be mean. I just think that this is all built on traditions. I think this is kind of built on speculations and deductions and not on the text of scripture. Um, Call me a biblicist, but I I think the Bible tells us that the gifts are going to continue until Christ appears in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 1 Corinthians 1, 7. So I'm kind of a biblicist. I kind of just think Paul was right. He knew what he was talking about. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote scripture. Uh, so that's just kind of my take. And as they have brought a bunch of arguments, we're going to try to do our best to knock them down. Uh, Michael, Michael, I know you guys are both as passionate as I am about this. Miller, I think you're probably most grieved of us all. Um, how do you guys, who wants, to, who wants to take over and kind of give an intro to what we should be expecting in this program? I'll, I'll let I mean, Roundtree, you give the intro. I mean, whatever. I don't know that Miller's more grieved over it. I've definitely grieved over it. But, um, you know, I I definitely, Josh, when you talk about knocking down, to be really clear here, we're talking about knocking down arguments. The same thing they're trying to do with us. And uh, and so we do want to knock down those arguments because we believe cessationism is unbiblical. We believe that cessationism elevates the traditions of men over the Bible itself. We believe that cessationism, rather than uh, holding the Bible in high esteem, denies the authority of the Bible by using workarounds to say that the Bible doesn't really mean what it means. When the Bible just says stuff, we should do what it says. And I know that's very simplistic and we can unpack that. Uh, We believe that cessationism is dangerous. We want to knock down arguments that are dangerous to your soul if you follow them. With that said, we affirm with all of our hearts that cessationists are not just our cessationist friends. They're our cessationist brothers and sisters. Amen. Uh, uh, Michael and I began as cessationists, and um, 
and spent years in that camp and uh, experienced the Spirit of God mightily in regenerating us and sanctifying us uh, and in uh, and, and many different ways and empowering us for ministry even before we believed in uh, the so-called uh, sign gifts, so-called because the Bible never calls them that. We'll talk more about that. But uh, cessationists uh, can love God and be incredibly, uh, just have done incredible things for the kingdom including uh, many of the people in this film. So uh, we hold no animosity toward them, uh, but we do want to utterly destroy their arguments because we believe that those arguments are harmful to your soul. Uh, Miller, do you have anything to add to what I said? Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, we want to, um, Michael, you said this already, and I'm going to just repeat this. We want to appeal to um, Les, the maker of the film, and other people that were in it as brothers. Uh, I think what has grieved me about the film uh, is how how quickly the accusations of false teacher, false prophet, and charlatan get thrown out by people in that video. And I actually think that is divisive. Um, they don't mention cardinal doctrines that, that any of us who are continuationists have denied. Um, what they mostly do is is talk about prophecies that aren't fulfilled and therefore people are false prophets. And so again, I, I think I, my hope is that we can have a civil conversation eventually with some of these people. I think the hardest part for me in a lot of this is we've tried to have, have conversations with guys like Justin Peters. Uh, we've tried to to di dialogue on some level, and we've had a few that, that are willing to show up on the scene like Kosti Hinn and Tom Schreiner. But the others, they won't come on the show. And part of that reason is um, is they actually think that we're dangerous. And I, I think, unfortunately, we're going to say the same. Uh, we actually think cessationism is dangerous. And we have a number of reasons for why that's the case. But we'll that will probably be at the conclusion of whatever this series uh, comes to. But again, I, I'm going to appeal as best as I can. Uh, though you may not think I'm a brother, I certainly think you are. And I want you to hear some of the reasons we have regarding these gifts uh, continuing today and some of the counter arguments we have for why you think they've ceased. That's good. Yeah. And it's important to say, like you said, though they think that our doctrines are dangerous and we think their doctrines are dangerous, uh, we're willing to sit down and treat them like brothers and have a discussion um, and, and engage with the text of scripture. So again, we extend that offer uh, out there to the makers of the documentary. Feel free to reach out to us. I know I reached out to a guy and spoke with him and spent some time with him on the phone. Seemed like a really nice guy. Um, when we made our review of the documentary trailer, uh, Miller, I think you were talking to someone else this week and engaging with him, and we've invited them on the show. So just for those of you who are out there who are like, hey, you know, why aren't you talking to these people? Why aren't you engaging with them? We, we have, so, um, and we plan on continuing to do that. So are you guys ready to jump in and start watching this content? They're real quick, so it'll, it'll fly sure. by. Okay, sure. clip number one um, is the authentication and authority argument. If we get a little bit more specific, we might ask what is the gift of miracles or who was a miracle worker? The gift of miracles was a gift given to a supernaturally endowed person. God worked miracles through that individual, confirming that that individual was a spokesman and representative for God. When Moses said, what if they don't believe me? God says, I'm gonna give you the power to work miracles so that they will believe you that you're speaking on my behalf. The miracles were given to validate that they are a mouthpiece for God, that he is a man sent by God to speak on behalf of God. 
Okay, so I mean, it's a quick little clip there. Uh, you can see quality of the documentary is fantastic. Videography is great. Um, effects on point. Uh, what do you guys think about that argument about the uh, the messengers of God are authenticated through these kinds of miraculous activities? Sure. Um, first of all, I'm a continuationist. I have I have no problem admitting that. Uh, I I think that that's not the only purpose. We'll talk about that, uh, but I affirm it. In fact, I would go further and say it's not just Moses and Elijah, but Jesus himself who is authenticated by his miracles. John 20, 30 to 31 talks about the signs uh, that Jesus did. They're more than could be contained in any book, and that he writes these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and find life in his name. And so I definitely believe that that is one uh, reason for the miracles. Now, uh, let me kind of just outline this argument and then um, and maybe have one of you guys respond because I just for our viewers, I want you to kind of clearly understand what they're trying to say. Number one, their premise is uh, that uh, that in those days they needed messengers to be validated by miracles because they had no complete Bible. Number two, we have a complete Bible. Number three, we don't need our messengers to be validated because the message is complete. And so number three is the conclusion like, hey, now the message is complete. We don't need signs and wonders to validate the messengers because that message is already out there. But back then with an incomplete Bible, they needed the signs and wonders to validate the messenger to say this is from God. Okay. So uh, Josh Miller, what would you guys say to uh, the premises and the conclusion there? Well, I mean, the premise asserts the conclusion. So the premise is restating the conclusion. It's a circular argument by definition. If you have created a category, a theological category, and you read it into the text of Scripture, it will come, and then, and then that you have determined by the premise what the conclusion is, it will create a circular cycle where you can only see what you've been told to see through this theological system of tradition. So it's not an explicit biblical text of scripture that says miracles are for this activity. Now, we do see that miracles do authenticate messengers. We do see miracles authenticate Jesus. We do see those things, but we also see false prophets performing miracles. So miracles in and of themselves don't authenticate the messenger in absence of a closed canon because we have tons of people performing signs wonders and miracles in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that were called false prophets performing false signs and doing false miracles. So uh, again, I, I think that there needs to be some more guts on this argumentation. Uh, there definitely needs to be a larger tiered system where if there's a miracle being performed, it's being performed in such a way that is in congruence with the text of scripture. Uh, but again, uh, I, I think that the, the main point I would say is that this is a circular argument where the premise uh, and the conclusion are one in the same. They're reasserting one another. Uh, and I think that if you have that kind of worldview, you're, you're going to come to that conclusion because it's a circular argument. Yeah, I would add to add to it that the assumption that the, the that miracles were only, it's not an assumption to say that miracles affirm the messenger. I think that's explicit in scripture. I do think it's an assumption to think that the miracles and signs and wonders that were performed were only to authenticate the messenger. 
I think there are a number of reasons why miracles are performed. Uh, I know, Michael, you've got a whole list of these in scriptures you've got practically memorized to go through that. But I, I'll just say say one thing. Let's just deal with the Egyptians themselves. You know, they use Moses as the example that the signs and wonders that were performed. Uh, Moses was given the power to perform these signs and wonders. Uh, and it was largely to confirm who he was. Um, and I would go, well, that's not the only reason. Um, sometimes the miracles performed are also to authenticate the message itself, which I think is true today. We're still preaching the gospel that Jesus preached today. And, and that gospel is still being affirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles because God cares that men come to repentance. And so, uh, I, I think that the other thing in this passage itself or in the Exodus situation, uh, is out of. Exodus 2, listen to this. He says, during, this is Exodus 2, 23, during the long period of time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned because of the slave labor. They cried out and their desperate cry because their slave labor went up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob, and he saw the Israelites and God understood. Here's another reason why God does these signs and wonders, because he cares about his people, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. He hears their prayers. Right. And he cares for them. And I think that is true back in the days of Moses and Egypt. And that's true today. And I think we've got a number of examples that show that show this. Right. And so your line of argumentation would be, okay, you want to use the closed canon argument. We've already shown this is circular. You baked your conclusion into your premise, which is a big logical fallacy. Uh, okay. So, and there is no scriptural statement that says that uh, is the exclusive reason. And there are many more reasons. One of them you named is God's, really two reasons, God's compassion. So God uh, saw the people of Israel and God knew and his covenant. And these two are married together because God shows compassion to his covenant people. Okay. And so the point I think you're making, Miller, is if we can show that there are reasons beyond just authenticating the messenger, reasons such as showing compassion to his covenant people, then those reasons, if they still apply today, then it's actually a moot point. Even if we, even if we gave them like number one, that like, hey, yeah, it authenticates messengers, I actually agree with that. Um, even if we start with that, we have to ask ourselves, does God stop having compassion on his covenant people? And I think we would have to answer, well, no, he definitely still has compassion on his covenant people. Well, that was a major purpose of these signs. Then we go to uh, Exodus chapter 14, uh, and we read this. God says, I will harden, verse 17 and following, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So we have another reason, the glory of God, which we also see in the New Testament, John chapter 9. Why is this blind man uh, sick? Is it for his own uh, sin or his parents' sin? No, this is for the glory of God. God glorifies himself through signs and wonders. We see this in Acts chapter 4. 
Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Guys, they're praying for signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray for signs and wonders. Why? For the glory of God and expansion of the gospel. Well, does God still have compassion on his people? Yes. Does God still glorify his name? Yes. Does God still want to swing wide open doors for the gospel? Yes. And we have other purposes for miracles as well. Michael, if we can, want I, to can I take a, a pause on that, uh, Exodus Please. 14? Because you said, let the door swing wide for the gospel. I think kind of implicitly, maybe not explicitly in this text, when it says that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and have gotten glory over Pharaoh, I'm thinking of the mixed multitude that leaves Egypt. Uh, of both the Egyptians and the Jewish people who are leaving Egypt because they recognize God's glory has been manifest. He is God. Pharaoh's not. And, and they they walk out with the children of Israel to go worship Yahweh uh, in the book of, of, of Exodus. So in this account, when you talk about, yes, one, uh, it's for compassion. Two, it's for God's glory. And three, you talked about kind of an evangelistic tool. You referenced the New Testament. But here, I think even in Exodus 14, you, you have a uh, kind of subtext of God displaying his glory to the nations in order that the nations would realize that he is God and that they should serve and worship him. Sorry, I continue. I just thought I'd toss that in there. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, th there are a number of reasons, others, uh, that are also mentioned. Uh, again, the so-called sign gifts, 1 Corinthians 13, the purpose of them is love. Uh, does God not want us to still show love? Um, uh, we have uh, 1 Corinthians 14 to build up the church. That's on a related note. Ephesians chapter 4, the equipping of the saints for works of ministry that ultimately resu results in the, unity, uh, in the unity of the church. Ephesians 4.13. Like, does, do these purposes not exist? Well, of course they still exist. So if God still wants to show compassion, still wants to glorify his name, still wants to express love, still uh, still wants to open wide doors for the gospel, still wants to build up his church, still wants church unity. And these were the purpose of these miracles. Uh, why, would he, why did he stop? Why did he stop doing miracles that achieved all these other purposes? So the cessationist wrongly hinges a hundred percent of the argumentation upon this is for authentication of the messengers. And we say it does do that, but it does all these other things too. Not to mention, you don't have a single Bible verse that says that, uh, that the reason for this, uh, for the gift ceasing, what uh, you don't, you have no single, what I'm trying to say, you have no single Bible verse that says the gifts will cease. Um, once the canon is closed, you actually just assume that. So, uh, I think it just ignores a host of reasons. That's good. There's one other thing I want to mention on this, that, that they're baking into the text. Um, they're baking into the Moses narrative that Moses, could, when, when he was empowered, he was supernaturally enabled by God to perform these signs and wonders. What they're assuming is that what Moses was empowered to do would be like, uh, what we see in Marvel comics. Uh, or like what we see, you know, Superman, DC Comics, right? Superman can fly at will. Superman has X-ray vision. Superman can shoot hot beams of light out of his razor, or lasers out of his eyes. Um, and so the kinds of signs that Moses can perform, they're saying are at will. Any of the signs that he performs, he could do at will whenever he wants. And I would actually argue against that. I think you're baking that into the text 
rather than drawing forth from the text what how Moses does these things. And I think you'll find that to be true with all of those who they claim had these miracle working powers. Um, you have to sort of have your definition of miracles, bring it to the text and insert it in there uh, to, to then validate your argument, which again, I think is circular reasoning. Also, you know, the text of scripture tells us that, you know, Elijah was a man like us, right? So if you're going to make the case that there are these specific prophets that had these specific clusters of miracles and the scriptures tell us that he's a man like us. Um, when I read the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 3.15, we've brought it up on this show a couple of times. You have an account where uh, Elisha cannot prophesy on command. He stands up and uh, a group of people come to him and he asks for a musician and the musician comes and he plays and then the spirit of the Lord falls on Elijah or Elisha so that Elisha can prophesy. So uh, to Michael's point, we see throughout the scriptures that these things are not necessarily done on command. In fact, Moses is told, hey, I'll put the words in your mouth. That's God, God tells Moses this. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the words to say and, and you'll do the things that I tell you to do. It's very similar to what Jesus is doing. He did what the father told him to do. He said what the father told him to say uh, and he was under authority. So he was being led to do these things, not just explicitly doing them of his free volition, of his own free will, uh, but under authority was led to do these kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles. Well, and I also think yeah. it's important to note, if you're saying that they had the ability to do this at, on command, uh, then they would ever, never have any need to pray for these things later. And I think we actually have examples where people do pray, and, and even prayers that God says no to. Um, and so that we'll get there later though. Let's, well, let's yeah. go to the next argument. Well, yeah, we are. Well, I'm not, I'm not quite ready to go to the yeah, next I was gonna say wrap it up. I, All right. Go I, for it. I think that it's, it's also just, I mean, just kind of, it's not logical uh, to assume that if Moses and Elijah had a complete Bible, they wouldn't have had miracles because just, just think about that, they, that they wouldn't have needed miracles. If they had a complete Bible, um, then Moses wouldn't needed wouldn't have needed the validation of miracles. But just think about that. Imagine like, just imagine a world where M Moses knew the complete gospel. He knew Jesus was going to come, live, suffer, die as the propitiation for sins, rise from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father, rip the sky when he returns in glory and resurrect the saints. All, like all of this, like imagine Moses knew all of that. And he shows up to Pharaoh and he just said, I, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the scene. Like, does he just show him the Bible or does he preach that full God? Like, like, does that, does the Red Sea still swallow up the Egyptians if Moses knows the entire, like, full revelation that would be unveiled in time? I mean, this, the Red Sea swallowing up the Egyptians is what the Psalms constantly go back to as an act of God's uh, justice against his enemies and his mercy toward his people. The, the point and where I'm going with this is just kind of ramming home the point once again that the miracles had other purposes. The Red Sea swallowed the Egyptians not to validate Moses, not in that. That one is not <laughs> what that's not what that miracle was for. Um, it, it was to rescue his people from slavery and to show his mercy and compassion. And once we open kind of these other arguments for why God gives his signs and wonders, um, it, it kind of pushes me into this space of considering why the film uh, Cessationist doesn't talk about any of the positive arguments for uh, continuationism. Miller, you mentioned uh, one of these whenever you started talking about how um, 
how people get saved as a result of these miracles. Uh, that's actually what Acts 1.8 says. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we have the rest of the book of Acts to tell us what that power looks like, starting in Acts 2 with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for prophecy, which is not just good preaching. Uh, it includes dreams and visions, according to Acts chapter 2. Uh, and then as we continue walking through the book of Acts, signs, wonders, miracles, revelations given not just to apostles, but given to Philip, given to Philip's four unnamed daughters, given to uh, Stephen, uh, and and so on. I could keep on going, Agabus, uh, people who are moving in this miraculous power. Uh, and and it's on many occasions opening up, like especially in Samaria, Acts 8, uh, opening up wide doors for the gospel. And, and so I look at Acts chapter 1 and 2, and I say, um, okay, one of the major purposes for miracles is to empower our witness. And I just don't think it's very reductionistic to say that the power for being witnesses just means good preaching. That's not what the book of Acts is teaching. I would say prove it. Prove it from the book of Acts, because I can show you what power means in the book of Acts, walking through chapter by chapter, and it's not just good preaching. Uh, so I, I would so, just say they ignore all the, the multitude of positive arguments for continuationism, all through arguments from silence because there is no positive argument for cessationism mm -hmm. if you're going to look at the actual intent of the author uh, you have to deduce things um, that no author intended that's good so in submission um god goes into egypt to display his glory before the other gods so he's like there's like some demonic strongholds and demonic activity that he's trying to crush and tear down so that's one aspect he's going in there to display his glory he's go he's going there to destroy a world superpower and, and bring it to its knees destroying its crops destroying uh, the firstborn that would receive inheritance destroying the army and the red sea so he destroys the superpower he shows compassion on his people and delivers them and those who are repentant in Egypt, they come to saving faith uh, by by uh, you know aligning themselves with the children of Israel and going to Mount Sinai. So as we walk through that list, it's not just to authenticate the messenger, displaying God's glory, power over the demonic, destroying a world superpower, and bringing justice to that superpower. You know, uh, delivering people uh, who are oppressed within that system to have faith, uh, uh, saving His covenant people. Time and time again, there are different reasons, and that's just the Old Testament. We're not even talking about New Testament references. So let's jump into our next clip. Uh, clip number two is what we call the cluster argument, that there's only a three specific periods of time where miracles took place. We've tackled this before, but we haven't done it from the cessationist film. So diving in. There were times, three of them in scripture, when God gave to men the power to work miracles. There is, first of all, the time of Moses and Joshua, 1400 years before Christ, a period of about 65 years. Then you fast forward to the time of Elijah and Elisha. You're about 800 years before Christ. And there again, you have a period of about 65 years when God was giving men the power to work miracles. The next period of time like that comes in the time of Jesus and the apostles. And that stems from the beginning of his ministry to at the very latest, the death of John. There you have another period of 65, 70 years. Those were the three epochs. And in each case, it was to confirm those men as his messengers. What say you? I mean, for one, I mean, there, I have a lot of things to say, but I'll say one, once again, and this is what cessationism uh, habitually does, it bakes the conclusion into the premise. 
their conclusion is the gifts ceased with the death of the last apostle. But did you see his argumentation? He said there are three periods of miracles ending with the last of last apostle. So your premise and conclusion are the same. Premise, uh, death of the last apostle. Uh, premise, a 65-year period of miracles ending with the last apostle. Conclusion, gifts ended with the last apostle. You can't do that. It's a logical fallacy. Cessationism is a logical fallacy. So I would start there, but there's so many more things uh, that we could say to our cessationist brothers whom we love. Uh, Miller, what about you? Well, I, I think there are times when you don't see much of the miraculous. Like we, there, there are actually examples of that, but it's not the way they describe it. Uh, and we actually have good reason for that. Why, why did God withhold miracles at certain times in Israel's history um, or even in the times of Jesus? You got Psalm 74, 9 through, 1, or 9 through 11. It says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? So here we have an example of, of God. There's not a prophet in the land. Why not? Well, it's largely because of Israel's rebellion against God. Um, and so it was seen as when these things aren't there, it's because people have been rebellious and they've fallen into idolatry and they've done egregious sins. And so God says, fine, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take this away from you because of your rebellion. Uh, we also have Mark chapter six, where uh, Jesus is in his own hometown. It says in verse three through six, is it not, is uh, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. He could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So then he went around the other villages and, ta and taught. So here we have another example. It says he could do no mighty works, the, the, the same kind of, or mighty miracles um, there, except heal a few sick people. So this is the Lord himself and his, his uh, ability to do the miraculous in this place was because of their unbelief. Again, that is a form of rebellion. And, and uh, I'm going to be kind here and withhold certain other comments, but uh, you do see that time happening. Well, you also see, like, we've referenced it on the show quite a few times, like Micah 3, there's no vision, no divination, no spirit given to the prophets who are prophesying falsely, but the spirit is upon me because I am willing to proclaim to Jacob his sin and Israel his transgression. That's in, in Micah chapter 3. I paraphrased it excessively, but uh, if you were to go read Micah 3, you would see a similar pattern where there's sin taking place, and because of sin that's taking place, there's not a spirit of the Lord that's present. There's not supernatural miracles. There's not supernatural signs. You see the same thing in the day of Samuel. The word of the Lord was rare in that day, but it was also in the day where there were sexual immorality taking place in the temple and theft in the temple taking place where the priests, the sons of Eli, were taking things of the offering that they didn't belong to them. So again, I think that we see this pattern throughout the scripture of why there are periods of time where we don't see miracles. However, uh, the idea that there is a category of time, only three specific periods where miracles and signs and wonders are, uh, are only taking place in this period, I would ask, where is your text of scripture that states that? Where is your text of scripture that says it only happened in those three periods? Where is your text of scripture that says it only happened in those three periods? And the other kinds of you know supernatural activities that we saw between those periods were not the same. These people could do it on command, but the rest of them couldn't. 
That's an argument from silence. There's no, there's no text of scripture that says that. You're just asserting it to be true. In fact, Jeremiah says the exact opposite in Jeremiah 32, 20 through 21. You perform, uh, you perform signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day in Israel and among mankind and have uh, uh, and gained the renown uh, that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by mighty hand and, and outstretched arms and with great terror. So here he says, uh, this is Jeremiah in Jeremiah's day, which by the way, uh, is after Elijah and Elisha uh, and before Jesus. So in this period of time where activities aren't happening, and he says, from the days of Moses all the way to today, you're performing signs and miracles. How's that possible? We were told there's only three periods of times that God is performing miracles, and it wasn't in the day of Jeremiah. No, it's actually through these long periods of time. Also, I would remind you that all of the minor prophets and the major prophets take place between Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. So you have books of the Bible that are compiled by prophets of God who are speaking prophecies, which, by the way, are supernatural acts of God in the earth, and they're taking place during these periods of time where we're not supposed to be seeing supernatural activity and supernatural miracles. Uh, again, <clears throat> here, here's, I, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be, a, you know, crass. I don't want to, I don't want to scoff, but I only have really two kinds, especially when we start reading all of these different Bible verses. I've got like six pages of Bible verses of miracles that took place in between these periods. But you, it feels like you have to have two two motives, um, two potential motives when trying to say that these miracles happened in only these three periods. One, um, you're motivated by just sheer ignorance. Like you just don't know the text of scripture. Or two, you're willfully trying to pack certain theological language to make your point. Um, I'm not sure which one's worse, um, but I don't, I'll tell you, I just, I don't think that you can be biblically serious and say that God only did miracles through certain people at certain periods of time in redemptive history, it takes place all over the scriptures, way before Moses, after Moses, before Elijah and Elisha, after Elijah and Elisha, um, you know, in the days of Jesus and after the days of Jesus. I just think it requires a level of disingenuous to say something like that. Roundtree, you want to you take us home with all these Bible verses and just kind of yeah. crush this idea? Well, I, I think for me, thinking back on my own cessationist days, I think it's the power of culture. Uh, all That's of their good. friends pretty much are cessationists. And when you're in that circle, it's, it's group think, and we just think this way. And it's very hard. And, and we identify throughout the film, a number of wrong assertions about what continuationists believe or incomplete assertions about what continuationists believe. And that's just, it, it's really hard. Uh, you know, it's like when I speak about Islam, you know, I've studied Islam. I'm not in it. It's hard to know all the ins and outs. And, um, and, and I think that's what happens here. And I think that what, uh, I think there's like a, um, we, we are so far like other to them and that, that I think there's not a deep engagement with our argumentation. And that's why they don't engage any of the positive arguments for continuationism. Well, but and, I think they won't engage so I think relationally with us either. Like we've, we've tried um, to yeah. actually have and, conversations. And that certainly, yeah. And that certainly depends on the cessationist. Um, right. But, uh, but I think that, uh, cessationism is within its echo chamber that causes one to not look at scriptures uh, at maybe in a way. I, I think that charismatics can be dismissed as not being biblically serious, so we don't need to take their arguments very seriously. 
And, uh, and what I'm saying is that's true sometimes. Sometimes charismatics are not biblically serious. Uh, sometimes cessationists are not biblically serious. And I think that in this specific case, there's not a serious investigation of the Bible and its case for continuationism. And there is a serious neglect and overlooking of repeatedly baking uh, conclusions into the premise and assuming things uh, that the Bible just never says. Um, the other thing that I would say is that um, the cessationist, if the cessationists lived during the times of Samuel, they would have concluded God just stopped giving prophecies. And then God raised Samuel up. It was in 1 Samuel 3, 1, the day when visions were rare. The, the point the scripture is making there is like, this was a time of judgment to your point, Josh. It was a time of judgment and God was speaking less to the children of Israel, but even in his mercy, he still raised up Samuel, a prophet for whom none of his words fell to the ground. And so, uh, but if a cessationist was living at that time, they would have just said, eh, visions are rare because, uh, well, God just stopped giving them. Same thing uh, with if a cessationist lived in the time of Asaph. Miller, you quoted Psalm 74. How long, O oh Lord, we don't have the visions, we don't have the prophets, we don't have, how long is this going to go on? And what we see is that the uh, the psalmist and the author of 1 Samuel, uh, rather than assuming God has just completely ceased this and making a theological defense for it, we'll go to the psalmist. The psalmist is actually pleading for this season to be over. How long means, Lord, let this season be over. And uh, and I do think there are some seasons in church history uh, where we see, for instance, in the first four centuries, miracles left and right. It's like popcorn. And uh, and then after that, it, it it never dies out completely, but it's less. And, uh, and, and I would just say there are seasons like that. And rather than drawing the conclusion of a cessationist, like, well, this is just what God did. Uh, what if we looked at our lack of experience of signs and wonders and revelations and said, uh, like the psalmist, how long, Lord? When, when will you change this? And uh, I think that would be a better response and a more biblical response. No, I, I think so too. That's good. Um, when we're looking at these um, arguments, uh, you know, Michael, you talked about culture just for a second. I think that we see that in our culture you know, depending on whether you're conservative or liberal, there are these kinds of talking points from the news anchors that we get fed, uh, whether they're true or not. I, you know, not to get political here, but the gender wage gap would be a great one. If you keep saying the gender wage gap over and over and over and over again, you're going to believe that there's a gender wage gap. Um, however, there's not one um, because every employer would just hire women instead of men if that were the case. So um, if you think critically about this, you kind of take into dangerous jobs, the choice of jobs that people pick freely of their own volition, uh, the same kind of job, you know, men and women are getting paid the same, but because of choice and because of uh, different opportunities that are allotted to each of these individuals, there is a difference in pay. Um, so when you think about these critically, you can actually begin to see it. But, but if you've been told the same thing over and over and over and over again, you begin to believe it is true because everyone's saying it. And a lot of these guys, you know, um, whether it's, you know, Tom Pennington from, uh, was it Countryside Bible Church, mm -hmm. whether it's the John MacArthur's, you know, all these people from Master Seminary like Phil Johnson. Um, you know, you've got uh, uh, earlier we were listening to uh, Stephen, not Stephen Nichols. Um, anyway, r regardless of all these different guys that are in here. Um, uh, yeah, it was Lawson, Steve Lawson is who I was thinking of. Um, 
All of these guys are repeating arguments that were said by Calvin, that were said by B.B. Warfield, that were said by Middleton. Um, these are where this is where cessationism arguments come from, and they haven't been um, renewed. They haven't been looked at again critically. They're repeating the same things, and we have scholars who've responded to this stuff. The reason that we're able to toss a video together like this uh, right after the movie Cessationism has released is because we've read those books. We've read Sam Storms. We've read Craig Keener. We've read Jack Deere. We've read Wayne Grudem. We've read D.A. Carson. And we've read The Cessationist. We've read B.B. Warfield and Middleton and Calvin. We've read them, and we've found them wanting. We, we've, we've put this theological category against this one, and we've sifted them together to see which one holds water. And cessationism doesn't hold water. And I think if you're a cessationist and you're going to be honest, you, you can say, hey, I'm parroting all of these great scholars that I love, but it's like, have you read the other side? I'd be curious because they don't engage with any of our arguments. I'd be curious if the makers of this documentary read any of our books, even one. Like, I'd be curious. Did you read Sam Storm's guide, to, you know, a comprehensive guide to spiritual gifts? Did you read Wayne Greedham's book on prophecy? Did you read uh, Craig Keener's book on miracles, his volumes on miracles? I would just appeal to you, man, if you're out there and you're a cessationist, are you a cessationist because you're in an echo chamber? Or are you in a cessationist because you're compelled that the text of scripture itself appeals to it? Because as we walk through these arguments, it's not hard to show that these arguments don't hold water. Um, there, there was something yeah. frustrating to me about this. Uh, I, I watched uh, Les on a podcast where he talks with some guys about the film that he had made. And one of the things that he claims is that uh, continuationists, they build their theology off of experience, uh, experiences, not the scriptures which this is the real irony of this is we've just shown over and over again that they don't provide scripture. They bake their, their conclusion into the premise and then they bake their conclusions into the scriptures. Uh, but they don't provide a single scripture to make these arguments. There's no scripture that says the gifts will cease. Uh, there's no scriptures that says there's only a cluster of times where there's miracles. Um, and, and then here we are, we've actually not shared a single experience. All we've done is talk through the text. I mean, this idea that there's only three periods of miracles, and we go, really? What about these miracles that took place in this scripture? Um, this idea that there's only one one main reason for why God, God does miracles, which is to affirm the messenger. We go, really? Because here's a scripture that says he heard their prayers. Here's a scripture that says he displayed his glory. Here's a scripture that says he has compassion. Um the argument that we're just building our theology off of experience, tell us how we've done that so far today. You won't be able to do that because we haven't shared one single yeah. anecdotal evidence. All we've done is showed the scriptures. We also I haven't shown a thorough, a thorough reference of the scriptures. We've just kind of, you know, picked and chose oh. a couple of little sprinklings here and there. There are lists of scriptures that take place in between these three uh, supposed periods of time. And we'll yeah. put that in the and show which, notes as well, right, right. Josh? Yeah. I mean, so, like, I wonder it, if the makers of this documentary ever read Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, where he actually goes through and he chronicles, and Josh has reproduced this in our show notes, but he chronicles... Uh, from Genesis all throughout the Old Testament, uh, the miracles that God did. Um, yeah, there it is. Josh is flipping through. I mean, it's it's dozens One, and two, dozens three, four, and dozens five, six, of miracles seven, eight that took pages. place outside of the so-called cluster period. So it is just a, an ignoring. And uh, and you know another thing because I would bet that probably a hundred percent of the makers of this documentary and the people interviewed in this documentary 
are complementarians. And, uh, and so are we on the show, uh, complementarians uh, who believe that men are the, to be the head of the church and, uh, and heads of the household. And we believe this is, uh, this is what the scripture clearly teaches. And, and what the complementarian routinely says is like, hey, it's, it, when 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says, I do not allow a woman to uh, teach or exercise authority over a man, and he gives reasons that are transcultural, rooted in the creation story, uh, the complementarian says, man, it feels like you got to do a lot of gymnastics to, to land at an egalitarian conclusion. Uh, and, and, you know, well, let's look at the culture let's look at the, and, it, and it's just like, what does the text say? That's guys, that's actually the continuationist argument. Uh, first Corinthians 14, one eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Um, you're doing the very thing that you say not to do about first Timothy two. You say, don't do gymnastics, just do the text. Well, that's what you're doing. You're doing the same gymnastics with first Corinthians 14, one. And one day you'll actually have to stand before God. And say, I not only um, I ref refuse to practice prophecy or uh, to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially gifts of prophecy. I not only decided not to obey that verse, but I taught other people to not obey that verse. Mm -hmm. I created a documentary that said, don't obey that verse because that's not the word of God for you today. It only applied to them for a few decades uh, in, in the first century, only applied until the death of the last apostle. And so you're going to have to answer for that one day. And so our, our appeal is just don't do gymnastics, just do what the text says and do what you say you do with first Timothy two. And I actually agree with you on that, but just apply it to first Corinthians 14, one. And so I'm saying it's the same kind of gymnastics. That's good. That's good. And let's let me run through some of these verses real quick, just so that people know that we're not talking out of our butt here. Uh, and when I talk about verses um, of scripture, if you want the show notes uh, in the link of the description, we'll have a link that is titled, you know, cessationism show notes. And we're going to be updating this as we go through week to week, going through new arguments. We're going to be tossing a bunch of research in it. So if you're a pastor out there, you want to preach through these notes, go for it. You, you have our permission. Our copyright is your right to copy. Take the notes, run with them, uh, preach it to your congregation. If you're a young person who's in a cessationist church and you want to memorize these arguments and, and, and you know, uh, equip yourself with these kind of biblical texts, we would encourage you to do that. We'll send them out uh, in the email list kind of, I think, uh, uh, weekly as we come out with these. It might be every other week, depending on uh, how frequently we get them out. But Genesis 1 through 3, God creates the world. He raptures Enoch in Genesis 5, 24. In six, uh, chapter 6 of Genesis, uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 6, 9 through 8, 19, there's a flood on the earth, which is certainly miraculous. In chapter 11, 1 through 9, uh, there's a confusing of human languages at the Tower of Babel. In chapter 12, 1 through 3, there's a supernatural call to Abraham. In chapter 12, verse 7, there's a plague over Pharaoh's house. In 15, 12 through 21, Abraham has a trance of a smoke and fire pot. In chapter 16, uh, verse 7, there's an angel of the Lord that appears to Hagar. In chapter 17, 1 through 27, the Lord appears to Abraham. In chapter 18, 1 through 15, the Lord uh, appears as an uh, the the Lord and angels appear to Abraham and eat a meal with him. Remember before they go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, in 1911, the angels uh, blind the men of Sodom. In 1923 through 25, the Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. In 1926, uh, Lot's wife is turned to a pillar of salt. In 23 through 18, uh, God warns Abimelech in a dream not to touch Sarah. In 21, 1 through 8, Sarah maliciously 
uh, I'm sorry, miraculously, not maliciously, miraculously <laughs> conceives Isaac. Uh, in 21, 8 through 21, God supernaturally saves the life of Hagar and Ishmael. In 22, 11, the angel of the Lord prevents Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. In 24, uh, 12, Abraham's servant uh, is supernaturally uh, led to Rebekah. In 25, 21, Rebekah supernaturally conceives twins. In 25, 23, the Lord uh, 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 speaks to Rebekah concerning the destiny of the two twins in her womb. Uh, in 26, verse 2, uh, the Lord uh, appears to Isaac in chapter 26, verse 24. The Lord appears to Isaac again in chapter 28, 12 through 15. The Lord appears to Jacob. So again, are you guys seeing a pattern in Genesis before Moses? God appears, destroys, blinds, cripples, pours out uh, 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 supernatural activity over and over and over again. Uh, and then uh, after Genesis, after Moses, you get to the life of the judges. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord appears to all of Israel. In chapter 2, verse uh, 1 through 15, uh, in chapter 3, 9 through 11, the Spirit of the Lord <clears throat> empowers uh, Othan to deliver Israel. In chapter 3, 31, uh, Sh uh, Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with an ox goat. Again, supernaturally empowered. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 4, 4 through 10, Deborah prophesies to Barak. In 6, 11, an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. In 6, 36, uh, the miracles of uh, of Gideon's fleece take place in seven one through twenty five. The Lord uh, sends divine uh, panic against the Midians, and, and Gideon is able to defeat them. Uh, in 11, 29 through, 20, uh, uh, 29 through 33, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Japheth to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. Uh, Ammonites. In 13, 3 through 5, the angel of the Lord appears to uh, Mona uh, and his wife, uh, who I think are Samson's parents. In, in, in 14 through 16, uh, Samson supernaturally uh, uh, has all kinds of feats, multiple chapters of scripture. Do one of you guys want to take it away or do we need to keep going? Uh, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm <laughs> I mean, tired of reading. I think it's sufficient, honestly. I think it's sufficient. Um, we we have these in the show notes. Go read Jack's, uh, Jack's book about the power of the spirit. Um, which is actually recently rewritten called still surprised um, by the, still surprised by the power maybe. But um, anyway, so I, I think it's sufficient. And then when you layer on top of that, Josh, the uh, entire books of the Bible, the prophetic books of the major and minor prophets written pretty much not in the seasons of Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Jesus and the apostles, they were written in between these times over the period of hundreds of years. And, all of our cessationist brothers and sisters would say revelation from God is quote is one of the quote sign gifts. Well, revelation was happening uh, to these There's people. entire so, schools of the prophet in first and second Samuel. Right. And so it seems like the cessationists are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. On one side, they're saying, Hey, all the mir miraculous sign stuff happened around, uh, around three people. And revelation is one of the sign gifts you can't say both of those things because if you're counting revelation, it definitely included all throughout. But of course, to your point, there were also signs and wonders all throughout. So it, it's just a, it's, it's a non-argument and it just disobey. It, it does not adhere to what we would call the grammatical historical principle of biblical interpretation. Uh, there's nothing in the scripture that points to this. There's nothing. We, we can't look at any text that proves this or in any way evidences this. Uh, and we certainly cannot look at the author's intent and draw the conclusion uh, that say Moses or one of the authors of scripture was trying to teach us that one day these things will cease because they were all meant to surround uh, three periods of history. Like it's, it's literally, it is made up out of thin air. It does not exist. 
it is not true and it does not follow the points that cessationists make. Yeah, that's good. Do we want to watch one more video, guys? I know we're kind of at the 50 minute yeah. mark. I think we get through one more. I think so. I think cool. so. Let's do clip number three. And, uh, clip and we'll do three. more. We'll do more oh. later. And this is going to be a serious, guys. Clip number three is going to be Ephesians 2.20, the foundation's argument. When you see the early discussions about the canon and which books are canonical, as we would say, one of the tests of canonicity was, does this book have apostolic origin or is it given a kind of stamp of approval by the apostles? Now, why is that? It's because the apostles had certain promises granted to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And those promises related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their speaking and in their writing. And so the reason why we can say with confidence that the canon is closed is because we no longer have those apostles. Should we go ahead and watch the next video too? Or is this? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Because they're yeah. kind of, they kind of tie into each other. There's the well. Let's watch. Let's do the Ephesians two twenty. We actually need to take our time to do, to go through this. We we've got so many clips to go through. So um, it's it's worth going through this. Can we all agree on the channel that the canon is closed? Michael Miller, do you agree that the canon is closed? Absolutely. Roundtree, canon closed. Yes, sir. What does this have to do with us? We all believe the canon is closed. Every charismatic, if you're like, hey, we believe in an open canon, we kind of distance ourselves from that person and go, you're crazy. Um, we believe that the apostles had unique authority um, because they were disciples of the land. There were 12 unique apostolic individuals who have their names written in the cornerstones of heaven. I think, is it, is it Revelation 19, Roundtree, my uh, Rolodex of Scripture? Revelation, I think it's Revelation 21, 14. 2114. There it is. So he knows 12 the apostles. address in the verse. Go ahead. Take it away. Uh, Jack Deere used to tell me, you only know as much theology as you can produce on the spot from the Bible. So I took it to heart. Jeez Louise. Uh, he did. He said you had to get citation and verse verbatim. Yeah. If you can't do that, um, you don't really know it. So Revelation 21, yeah, 14, it it says that the names of the 12 apostles are written on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. Uh, we see throughout scripture that these 12 are uniquely important. That's why when Judas is out of the picture, Peter's like, hey, we got to replace this guy. And Matthias ends up being the guy. And uh, and 1 Corinthians 15, it will reference the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And it will say he appeared to the 12, but then he appeared to the other uh, and then to the apostles. This means there were apostles who did not belong to the 12. We know that, of course, Paul was an apostle. We know Barnabas, Acts 14, was also an apostle. Titus is labeled an apostle. Uh, it, depending on how you count it, there uh, I've seen ranges from 15 to 20 apostles uh, that are named in the New Testament. And then when you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8.23, in most of our translations, the ESV, which I preach from, translates it as messengers of the churches, but it's the same Greek word for apostles, apostles of the churches. You are watching The Remnant Radio. I dropped my phone onto my keyboard. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Just in case you forgot what you were watching, this is Remnant Radio, folks. Um, <laughs> so, so we would say that even in New Testament times, they were distinguishing between the 12 and other what we might call, I mean, what 
Paul called messengers to the churches or apostles to the churches, or what we might distinguish between capital A apostles and lowercase a apostles. However you distinguish them, the New Testament church definitely distinguished them. And so we agree that original 12 proof of canonicity did apply to that, that either an apostle had to write it or the person had to be connected with an apostle. Totally agree with that. But this is different. I mean, even uh, you think about it like this, Ephesians chapter four, uh, ties apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It names these as ascension gifts. Uh, Jesus quoting, it, it's quoting, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18, to show how Jesus plundered the enemy and ascended uh, to uh, into the heavens and poured out gifts upon men. And those gifts included the uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um, these individuals actually are the gifts. And, uh, and so... If that happened after the ascension that Jesus gave apostles, this must mean more than the original 12 apostles whom Jesus names apostles in the synoptic gospels themselves. So there were definitely more apostles than just the 12, capital T, 12. Uh, and, and so I, I think that what the cessationist argument is doing is it's actually conflating all of these. So when they say there are no more apostles today, well, we certainly agree the 12 are in heaven, but Jesus poured out, because of his ascension, apostles upon the church. So are there 2 Corinthians 8.23 messengers to the churches still? Uh, we on Remnant Radio would consider, consider these more like missionaries, church planters, and certainly would agree that there are still those. So those are a few things that we could say into that uh, argument. There's a lot more. I'll let you guys talk. Yeah, we, we, we skipped one of our videos and went straight to the canon of scripture rather than doing the foundation. So I, I actually just mislabeled them. But it's worth taking a pit stop and saying, hey, we agree with you that the 12 apostles are unique. And there was some necessary influence and connection with the 12 apostles for a piece of scripture to be considered canonized and to be accepted by the universal church to say, this is God's word. We accept that premise. However, we reject the premise that those 12 apostles are the same as all other apostles. Like Michael mentioned, other apostles such as Titus, Timothy, and others who were sent out by the church, sent out by the disciples in such a way to continue to spread that message, we would say those gifts are still active. God still gives grace for those things. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are necessarily writing scripture. In fact, all of you who are cessationists, you're using the exact same word we are when we use the word apostle, when you use the word missionary, except you're using the Latin version, uh, which is to be sent in Latin. The word apostle means sent one. So you're talking about missionaries the same way that we're talking about apostles. You don't think your missionaries are establishing and writing scripture. Neither do we. So I think that's good there. Michael Miller, do you want to add anything to that? We can hit no, that no, foundations no. argument that we, I meant to click, but I must have uh, misordered. As his apostles, they're the foundation of the church. What they say, Christ says, what they assert about his ministry is true. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of the church. Jesus chose the apostles to further reveal the mystery of the church. And finally, God provided various other prophets within the church while the New Testament was still being written. This is the foundation of the church, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.20. The apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. It doesn't make any sense to think that the foundation of a building goes all the way to the roof. It's the foundation. This is an historical assertion that the apostolate was limited to the foundation period of church history. 
Roundtree, this is your favorite argument to knock down, I think. Should I, I just let you go with it? I think I think so. He's smiling because he knows it's true. He just doesn't like it this is. one. Yeah. Well, there are a number of things that we could say, so I'm not going to say all of them. Uh, I, I'll, I'll simply say this, that when we, say, when we see in Ephesians 2.20 apostles and prophets uh, being part of the foundation of the church, uh, we have to look at apostles and prophets in the context of the whole book of Ephesians and not just stop there and assume that what's sp- being spoken of is, uh, is merely a first century phenomenon of, of people that God gives the church. Okay, so as we keep reading Ephesians 3, 5, it says that, uh, you know, I, I should have had this this verse open, but I think I can turn there really quick. If you quickly. can't memorize oh. it, you don't know it, said Jack Deere. You're wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so Ephesians 3, 5, uh, I'll start I've in verse 4. You when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so the Jewish people, they they well knew the, the promises of Scripture that one day Gentiles were going to flock in. But it was always this view of kind of like, well, you know, we'll let them into like the overall uh, kingdom. Uh, but there was always this sort of thing. It was a very Israel-centric thing. It was a mystery, Paul says, that nobody knew before that Gentiles would actually be co-heirs, equal footing, not second-class citizens relative to the Jews, but co-heirs of the same promise, the promise made to Abraham. And so that was the mystery revealed that they didn't know before. And so this must connect to the foundation of the church. And it absolutely does, because the argument that he's been advancing in Ephesians chapter 2 is, guys, we're not separate. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and made us into one new man, into one new body. And so because of the work of Christ, Jew and Gentile are one, not like uh, Jews are first and Gentiles are second class, but hey, you can at least go to heaven when you die. No, we're heirs of the same promise. And so in what sense are the apostles and prophets uh, foundational contextually, they're foundational in the sense that God revealed to them the mystery that none of the prophets previously saw, but now in the new covenant age, God has revealed to them that Gentiles are on equal footing. In that sense, they are the foundation because they brought a new revelation. A foundation is a new thing. And this is upon what the temple is built upon the temple being the church. The temple is built upon this reality that we're not going to have a a Jewish church separate from a Gentile church, and they're not going to be two separate peoples of God. There's going to be one people of God. Uh Oh, did I touch on dispensationalism? There's going to be one people of God, (laughs) a church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is the foundation laid by the apostles and and prophets, or or we could even say they are the foundation, but this is figure, it's metaphor. And, uh, And just as they brought this revelation of Gentiles on equal footing, in that in that same way, they have been part of this foundation of what God builds up for the future, which is why when we get to Ephesians 4, 
the third time he mentions prophets and apostles together in verse 11, it's tied to the ascension because Jesus, having broken down the wall of hostility through his death, ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out gifts upon his church. But apostles and prophets, they keep going. The revel the revelation that they gave, there, there was this was a foundational period, no doubt because of the mystery that was revealed. Um, but going forward, according to Ephesians chapter 4, apostles and prophets themselves will continue, not necessarily continuing in, in um, that new revelation of mystery. That part has already been revealed. But they will continue in their equipping ministry, according to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, what, what do you That's guys good. think about the argument as I just set that forth? Well, well I, I just want to... I want to restate it because the, the cessationist argument is uh, there was a foundation that was laid by apostles and prophets. That foundation has been laid by prophets and apostles and prophets in the first century. Therefore, we no longer need apostles and prophets because the foundation was laid. This was their purpose. Their purpose has been fulfilled. Now they're gone. Michael is saying, is the New Testament talking about apostles and prophets all apostles and prophets or is it only talking about specific apostles and prophets that specifically contributed to the laying of this mystery of gentile inclusion uh, i would ask the cessationist does this verse say scripture does this verse say that apostles and prophets laid the foundation of scripture that's not what this verse says now, in fact if you were to say that it does lay scripture and all prophets were laying this infallible foundation in all of these churches where prophecy was taking place you have a problem on your hands because, uh, you know, as cessationist, all of you that I know are complementarian, meaning that you believe that women do not preach, teach, and exercise authority over men. Uh, but the, the teaching office and teaching and communicating the truths of Scripture is reserved for male leadership and male eldership, a, a position that, that we hold here on the show. It's not, uh, we, we're not talking at you, we're talking with you. And if that's the case, that women can't teach, preach, and exercise authority, and children can't teach, preach, and exercise authority, uh, the Bible explicitly says in Acts 2 and Joel 2 that men and women, young and old children will prophesy. Um, Philip's daughters prophesy. Uh, there are women in the church of Corinth that are prophesying and they have to do it with head coverings. They're instructed to do it in a specific way. So the argumentation that all apostles and prophets, all of them that were prophesying and being apostles, they were all laying this infallible foundation because we didn't have scripture. And now that scripture has been laid, we no longer need them. You're actually stating that women and children who couldn't preach and teach scripture are laying the infallible foundation for all people everywhere through their prophetic ministry. That's a dangerous, a dangerous assertion. Uh, that that that's an inconsistent con assertion. I would say it's an inconsistent assertion to suggest that women and children are doing this, and they're allowed. They're not allowed to permit and teach, recommunicate, repeat what the Word of God says, and and but they are allowed to establish the what the Word of God says in all churches everywhere. Uh, I would submit to you that uh, in the same way. Uh, the, uh, that uh, in the New Testament, there were apostles and prophets laying this foundation, while simultaneously there was another group of prophetic people who were doing prophetic ministry to encourage and equip and build up, uh, that that is still happening today, that that foundation was once for all set, and there's still a, a separate ministry of other kinds of prophetic ministry taking place. Dr. Wayne Grudem, in uh, his book uh, on prophecy, which is in the show notes, you can check out the, the citations. Uh, his argumentation is it's not just a group of apostles and prophets, but this Greek conjunction that's brought together, it's this group of apostle prophets. 
in the same way that Ephesians 4 talks about pastor teachers. It's not pastors and teachers, it's pastor teachers. He suggests that uh, this verse in Ephesians 2.20 is about a group of apostle prophets. So the apostle Peter would be a good example. He would be an apostle that found out about this mystery of Gentile inclusion. How did he receive the information of this Gentile inclusion? By way of prophecy. In Acts chapter 10, he falls into a trance, remember? Or Acts chapter 9, he falls into a trance. Um, anyway, so, and then it's repeated in chapter 10. So, uh, uh, the apostle Paul also prophesied. So, Grudem is kind of coming to this understanding because of the way that the Greek is put together, that this is not a group of uh, uh, long past in our, our, a group of mixed multitude of prophets and apostles, but a specific group of apostle prophets, namely, he would say, the twelve. Uh, Miller, is there anything you want to add to that conversation? Uh, no, I'm just going to ask Michael if he would agree with this. Uh, so in in their statement, would you agree that they're baking into the text a, a pre-fixed meaning of what apostles and prophets are doing when it comes to founding the church and that by founding they mean the scriptures but the problem is there's no verse of scripture that says that is that accurate that they're baking it into the text and then secondarily would that since you went through and said contextually here's what this means he unpacks it later on so they're actually isolating this text from the rest of ephesians and thereby taking it out of its context do you agree with that i would 100 percent agree with that uh, I mean, just one of the basic principles of interpreting the Bible is what did the author intend to teach in this scenario? And, uh, and so I would just say to the cessationist, do you believe Paul was trying to teach cessationism here? Um, because that needs to at least be relevant in how we interpret this text. And I would say there's absolutely no way Paul was trying to teach cessationism. If it, and, and certainly not cessationism based on a completed canon, uh, because Paul in this text actually doesn't even mention a canon. He doesn't mention scripture. Uh, he, he doesn't mention any of the things that cessationists are basing the entire argument on. Uh, and so, yes, I would say it ignores the context of Ephesians 3.5 and the mystery the apostles and prophets were bringing, uh, number one. And uh, number two, it ignores the intent of Paul. If Paul was trying to teach cessationism, tell me how he could actually also teach the Corinthians this. This is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8 to 12, uh, which is not dealt, dealt with in, uh, in the movie Cessationist. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Uh, so he's mentioning the so-called sign gifts. Uh, and he says, they will seize one day, but when will that be? For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Cessationists used to say the perfect comes means the Bible. And they would say, see, the Bible's here, so we don't need that stuff anymore. But now 90% uh, of the cessationists I've talked to have, been, have admitted that's actually a, a really terrible argument. Um, the perfect coming is actually a reference to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus comes, the partial, that is the, the spiritual gifts will pass away. Um, so we, we as continuationists would agree there is a day coming when the spiritual gifts will cease, uh, and that day is when Jesus returns. That's what Paul says. Let's keep reading. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That is a classic way uh, that the Jewish people would speak about, uh, and now we call it the beatific vision. Uh, seeing the beholding the face of God. This is, uh, and this is what happens when Jesus returns. Um, 
And he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That level of knowledge, even as I have been fully known, um, that is talking about the eschaton. That is talking about the end of the age. That is talking about the return of Christ. That is talking about when we see his face. According to the Apostle Paul, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will continue until Jesus returns and we behold the face of God. And, um, and specifically, even the sign gifts. And in that same book, the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1.7, he'll praise the Corinthians for excelling in all the spiritual gifts as they wait for the revelation of Christ. So twice in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul asserts that the gifts will continue until Jesus returns. Uh, but one of my favorite scholars, Tom Schreiner, who is a cessationist, he says that 1 Corinthians 13 is the best argument for continuationism. I would probably agree, although there are other stellar arguments for continuationism that are direct derivations from the text. Um, Do you have that quote from he, Tom pulled up, Michael? Uh, I can pull it up quickly if one of you guys talk. Well, uh, but uh, let me just finish this thought. Sure. Um, so first, uh, he says that it's the best quote uh, or the, the best text for cessationism. But then he goes on to say that maybe Paul didn't know that the gifts would cease because he didn't need to know. And, uh, and he says, and it does say that in very directly, he says in first Corinthians 13, um, you know, I will just pull it up. Cause yeah, I that's think why you I pull might... that up. That's what I was going to say. I was going to unpack that. Cause he came on our show to tell us that we, we asked him, you know, what do you think about this verse? And he told us, well, you know, I think, uh, I, I think Paul, Paul believed that would happen because Paul didn't know when Christ would appear. Uh, and we can kind of agree with the grounds that Paul wasn't sure when Christ would appear. However, to say that the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul infallible, inerrant scripture, and that those infallible, inerrant scripture written by the Holy Spirit says um, that the gifts will continue until Christ appears. And when he appears, all of these gifts will cease. That is a dual authorship situation. And this, this, I think this is the best that the cessationists can come up with when it comes to 1 Corinthians 13, if they're going to be intellectually honest. And, yeah. and I say that loving Tom Schreiner, thinking he's a great man of God, respect him deeply. I use his commentaries regularly. Great, great guy. But it's disappointing to hear that like, well, Paul didn't know, but we know better. Like that's just, I don't, I don't care for that interpretation. Uh, yeah, it, it actually, I mean, could that endanger sufficiency of scripture? Like that. I mean, that's why I said it bothers me. Because <laughs> usually that's that's the best way to peg uh, a violation of sufficiency of Scripture is that like, well, we uh, we have... They didn't know, but we know better. We have a di we know better than Paul did. Uh, Progressive revelation. Than, than the authors of the New Testament did. Yeah. Um, because we can look and trace through church history, supposedly, that the gift ceased. So th that's, that's like a new revelation from church history that the gift ceased, um, which... We would also contend because the church, the gifts do continue in church history. We'll talk about that in a f future episode. Um, here's what he says. I mean, I don't want to read it all. After making the point of 1 Corinthians 13 being a strong continuationist argument, uh, he still disagrees with it. And he says, let me reiterate what I said in the last chapter. Paul believed Jesus was coming soon, and he said the gifts would end when Jesus returned. Uh, so notice that he said the gifts would end when Jesus returned. So he has the same interpretation so far as me on that sentence. What wasn't clearly revealed to Paul is that history would last at least 2000 more years. The next point is, and then he says, the next point is speculative and could be off center, but the Lord didn't reveal clearly to Paul that the gifts would end because he didn't want the Corinthians or Paul to know the day of his coming. 
Every generation should live as, as though it's the last generation. Um, but if Paul taught that some gifts would cease slowly, so slowly cease, then it would be evident to both Paul and the Corinthians that Jesus would not be coming back during their lifetime. Um, definitely agree with Tom that that is speculation. <laughs> uh, he says it might be speculation. I would say it is. Then he goes on. I, I would suggest that though 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 12 tells us that the gifts will end when Christ returns, it doesn't require that all the gifts last until Jesus returns. Many Christians throughout church, uh, throughout church history have rightly discerned from scripture, theological deduction, and experience. Interesting. He notes using experience. Uh, that's what continuationists are accused of, that at least some of the gifts have ceased. The Lord did not choose to divulge the particulars of 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, that's enough. That's the bulk of the code. But, but the problem is, um, it, when he says that it doesn't require that all the gifts last until Jesus returns, the gifts that are in question, the so-called sign gifts, prophecy, tongues, they're actually mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. And they are mentioned that they will last until Jesus returns. So I Amen. think what, what Tom, it feels like what he's doing, again, one of my favorite scholars, but it feels like what he's doing is he's uh, almost like kicking up a cloud of dust. I'm not attributing intent here, uh, but a cloud of dust and kind of just saying, well, some gifts could seize. It doesn't mention all the gifts while ignoring the fact that the sign gifts, and I don't like that term, are directly mentioned in that passage is lasting until Jesus returns. This is a I, positive argument for continuationism. And I don't think that it is biblically sound to say, well, maybe Paul just didn't know that they would cease. Because what you're doing is you're ignoring the author's intent. And you're saying the author's intent didn't really matter. Um, maybe even Paul thought that they would continue until Jesus returns, but now we know better. And I would just say, man, any biblical interpretation that says now we know better than the apostle Paul while he was right. We, we actually know better Hard pass. Like as he's writing the scripture, we know more than him about uh, what the very thing he was writing about. I just, I think that that argument troubles me uh, with all due respect. It troubles me. And I think cessationists should read first Corinthians 13, eight to 12 and have an honest assessment of what it actually means. And, uh, me, and I think me... it's a, one of many positive arguments for continuationism. Let me drive this home just because when we mention the, that there is a timestamp for these signed gifts ceasing, again, we don't use the term signed gifts. We're borrowing that from the cessationist because we don't see an actual distinction of what considers what's considered to be a signed gift versus just a lesser than gift. Um, but in that very passage, when it talks about the timestamp for these things ceasing, it actually explains why. Right? Why? Why would the gift of healing cease? Because we have new bodies that are That's right. perfect; they don't decay. So there is no need for healing. Not because the gift just sort of slowly disappears throughout history, but because we have resurrection bodies, and thereby no need for the gift of healing. Why would the gift of prophecy cease? Why would we? Why do we know in part now, but then we'll know fully? Well, the implication is is that we need words of knowledge. We need words of prophecy now. Because all has not yet been revealed. But in that day when Jesus comes, when everything is suddenly in the light, everything is revealed. It says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. Well, that face to face passage, again, is a direct reference to Moses. 
right? There's a prophet that's going to come like Moses, right? He, he knows God face to face. He speaks with God as man speaks to man. This is a, a return of Christ scenario. But the, the idea is that the knowledge will be so clear, like that, that we'll actually know God and one another just as God knows us. It'll be a face to face encounter. Um, that's why there would be no need for words of knowledge, revelation, right. because it's suddenly revealed. It's all revealed. Right. It's you, no longer you don't in darkness. Need, you don't need partial revelation after the revelation of Jesus Christ at his return. You don't need the partial when the fullness has arrived. You don't need spiritual gifts uh, when the greatest gift of all is right in front of you in person, physically, the Lord Jesus. So that's what... Paul is trying to say. So we think the, let's walk, the argument breaks down. Let's walk through because we got we got a little bit on our uh, 1 Corinthians 13 rabbit trail because it wasn't addressed in the documentary, which is shocking. The documentary about cessationism is not quoting the one verse that talks about when the gifts will cease. Um, feels like a hard fail. Um, anyway, sorry, that was maybe aggressive, more aggressive than it should have been. Uh, so when I look at the Ephesians 2.20, we, we've kind of walked through a couple of arguments. One of them is that uh, there's a specific group of apostles and prophets that are getting revelation about the Gentile community. It's not speaking to all prophets and all apostles for all ages to come. Uh, as Michael said, uh, grammatically, that doesn't make sense because by the time you get to Ephesians at chapter four, he's talking about all these gifts equipping the saints until we come into this perfection in this perfect unity, uh, which is obviously in this age to come. So uh, those things continue. Uh, then the next argument that we had is how it's inconsistent. Ephesians 2.20 is inconsistent with the idea that that complementarians hold that women and children aren't too permitted to, to teach and exercise authority in that kind of capacity within the local church. However, they're able to lay an infallible foundation for all people everywhere. We also talked about how this was inconsistent and assuming uh, that, that, that uh, this verse has to do with scripture and how we have to take the author's intent into account. We kind of went through the first Corinthians 13 kind of rabbit trail talking about how, hey, the author's intent matters with these texts. We can't just make up whatever we want from these texts. This verse is not talking about scripture. It's talking about the foundation, the inclusion of the Gentiles coming into the covenant community. Finally, in Ephesians 2.20, we would say that this is reductionistic. This is a new one. We haven't talked about it very often, but we see this in Jack Deere's book. Um, I believe it's surprised by the power. I have it here in our notes, but Jack Deere says something to the fact of the fact that apostles had a foundational role in the establishing of the church in Ephesians 2.20 does not mean that the Lord could not or would not give more apostles. Someone had to be the founder of the church. Uh, would we argue that just because they founded the church that their ministry must be temporary? The founding director of a company or corporation will always be unique in the sense that he or she was the founder, but that doesn't mean that the company would not have future directors and presidents. So this idea that, okay, uh, I founded Remnant Radio, but one day I'm going to get hit by a bus and die. I hope that's not how I go. Anyway, uh, one of these days I'm going to bite the dust. Someone's going to keep taking over Remnant Radio and keep running with it. So my role as starting Remnant may be unique, but it doesn't mean that there won't be people who fill my role moving forward. And that's what Paul, uh, that's what jo uh, Jack is saying of the apostles and prophets, that the 12 apostles of the Lamb are unique. They are laying this in this foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20. However, that's not to say that there aren't going to be other apostles, little a apostles, such as Timothy and Titus, who are going to fill uh, fill the void of church planting and pursuing that kind of ministry and proclamation of the gospel, teaching doctrine and performing signs and wonders throughout the earth so that they 
aren't going to be able to do those things. It's that they're going to do them in a different kind of capacity. I think we see this in the life of Moses. Moses is a specie-unique prophet. None of his words fall to the ground. He's, he is unique. He speaks to God face to face, but to all the other prophets, he speaks in riddles and in dark sayings. And there's going to be a prophet who's arising who's going to be like Moses. He's going to be unique in that capacity, and it's Jesus who is to come. So uh, I would say if there can be a prophet like Moses and other prophets that aren't like Moses, there can be apostles and other apostles not like the apostles. I think that is a kind of good way of articulating that. Do you, you guys smell what I'm stepping in? Did I did I make clarity yeah, of that when talking about Moses and the prophets? It smells great. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. I feel like we're at the point of the... the oh, Closing Michael thoughts. is waving me a time down. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we're probably at the pl- place where we need to wrap this program up. Is that where you guys are feeling? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to give... I got a closing thought, though, for... Yeah. for our cessationist friends, you accuse continuationists of being emotionally driven, of building their theology off of experience and not the scriptures. Uh, and you accuse us of being dangerous. Those, those are accusations that I hear on the regular. And I actually have a podcast of the maker of this film saying those exact things. Um, okay, for the first one, that we're driven by emotions. Uh, how is that the case right now? Um, what emotional frenzy have we fallen into to make these arguments? Have we built our theology today off of experiences? Did we even mention one anecdotal piece of evidence to say, this is why we're continuationist? No, we haven't. We've actually used the scripture. Whereas what we found with you guys is that you've baked your conclusions into your premise and you've baked your beliefs into the scriptures. You've predefined, you've stacked the deck It's really hard to lose when you're already setting and determining what the definitions are when you bring them to the text. And then uh, what was the last thing I just said? Uh, I don't know. I think that was probably enough. Um, Not trying to be rude, but the fact is this isn't a fair way of assessing your critics. And and I think you are in an echo chamber. I think it's fair that, that, that you go and read the very text that we've mentioned, Jack Deere's books, Sam Storm's books. And one other that I would mention that still has yet to be interacted with is John Mark Ruthven's work on the cessation of the gifts. Not one scholar that I know of has dared to touch that book. Cessation nope. scholar, that is. But again, it's, it's, it, we're, we're in a place where if we, if we respond to it, we're going to give it credence. If we respond to it, you know, uh, we're going to make our audience aware of these arguments. And honestly, I think that's what it comes down to. I think Sam's arguments are good. I think Jack Jack's arguments are good. I think uh, Craig Keener, his arguments are good. Also, if, you, if you're not familiar with these names, these are not like just some random guys. Like these are presidents of the Evangelical Theological Society. I mean, these are scholars of scholars. These are these are pastors. These are guys who worked for, you know, Piper. These are guys who, I mean, they have spent their life in the scriptures, pouring themselves out for the work of God. And they've seen demonstrations of God. These aren't just like, you know, guys who are walking around the airport, slapping people with coats and making them fall on the ground and shake. We're talking about individuals who spent their life reading books, writing books, studying theology, studying church history, and then practicing the stuff. So, um, I mean, I would, you know, that, that, in that, that video that you talked about, though, the, the founder of this documentary is engaging with, you know, this conversation with two other guys. You know, he goes out of his way to say, you know, I don't understand guys like Sam Storms. They seem to be orthodox, but then, but then they speak in tongues. And why would they? Why would he speak in tongues? He never does it in public. I think it's because he's afraid and ashamed. Well, no, he's commanded by Scripture not to do it where unbelievers can be present. Like it's just the shots that he takes at these guys are wild. And and again, it's a guy, in my opinion, probably who does a documentary and doesn't 
isn't isn't able to grapple with the text of scripture and grapple with some of these theological arguments and i would understand why you would want to in, bring a bunch of other scholars on and, and invite them on and and have them kind of make the case um because i mean to say that hey these guys they're not practicing tongues because they're afraid and ashamed they're not practicing tongues publicly because the, the scriptures command us not to. They command us to practice Lots the gifts where there's an interpreter present or, or they, they command us to, practice, to to speak to ourselves, you know, uh, and, and not to do this publicly in a way where unbelievers would come amongst us and say, man, these guys are out of their minds. Uh, me and Miller and Roundtree do the exact same thing. So um, anyway, I, I, I yeah. think it's silly. And um, I think uh, I think these arguments just don't hold water. So uh, this is going to be a long series, uh, guys. Josh, As you saw. Josh, can I make a closing? Yeah, go closing ahead. thought. I mean, it's not really fair. I mean, you and Miller get to make a closing thought, but not sure. me. Sure, go ahead, talk Michael. Already. So unfair. Oh, thanks. I mean, you are the founder, though, Josh. So Wow. <laughs> I do have a unique role. You have a... Yeah. So, um, and he's muted. That's a part of my unique powers as uh, a founder. I'm just kidding, Michael. <laughs> first of all, I would like to make an appeal to the makers of this video and to the people who appear in it. Um, it... Could you make it clear that you view continuationists as brothers and sisters in Christ? Of course, that doesn't mean that you affirm every continuationist. Like uh, Neither do we. You know, neither do we. I mean, Kenneth Copeland, we believe, drifts off into heresy. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about if, a, if somebody affirms the Nicene Creed and is worshiping the triune God and is uh, adhering to the historic doctrine of the church and is continuationist. Will you affirm that that person is a brother or a sister? Um, I would love to, to have that. I wholeheartedly affirm that of you. And I think you can uh, be very faithful to God, uh, even in your cessationism. I do believe cessationism is, is wrong and dangerous. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that you can be faithful. And I'm, I, I think that for all of us, we're probably going to appear before God and, and realize some things that we were, <laughs> a number of things that we were wrong about. And, uh, and I, I think God looks at the whole picture. But I, I would love to see that um, because uh, a lot of times from cessationists, uh, I see um, false prophet and false teacher as terms that are thrown around, which are only used in scripture to describe non-Christians every single time. So um, that's a really divisive thing, and it's a heavy charge if that's uh, what you actually believe about us. I don't mind you saying that you believe our doctrine is dangerous. I believe the same about you. Uh, but do you actually believe that we are not your brothers and sisters? And uh, do you believe that continuation is generally uh, that Sam Storms and Craig Keener and Jack Deere are not your brothers and sisters? Um, determining, I mean, who's in our family is kind of a big question. And, uh, and secondly, I, I would make this appeal, and it's from Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 3, Jesus says to the Pharisees, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 6, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Uh, I believe that cessationism is doing that on this issue. Uh, I believe that it is elevating the tradition above the word of God and thereby making void the word of God. So that the very accusation that continuationists discard the word of God uh, is actually the one that's happening in this case. I'm not saying across the board, probably in 98% of other ways you are completely um, adhering to the scripture. But in this case, uh, it is elevating a tradition. And I would uh, exhort you as a fellow brother to humbly Look at the positive arguments for continuationism and let's make this a conversation.
That's super yeah. good. Guys, uh, we have, I don't know if you could tell, we just did five, what, four clips, five clips, something like that. We've gone 12 minutes through the two-hour documentary of cessationism. So if you can't tell, we have lots of things to say about the things that are said, uh, that are asserted very clearly as factually true. And as you can see, uh, the arguments, such as these gifts are only given to uh, affirm that these guys are sent from God, that these were only foundational gifts, uh, that this was only for the closing of the canon, those kinds of activities. If you, if you walk through all of those arguments that we've gone through, these things are just asserted super confidently. And as we kind of approach the scriptures, they only happen through these three periods of time. We've shown no, no, actually the gifts weren't just to prove that these messengers were sent from God. The gifts weren't just for three specific periods of time. Uh, these supernatural signs and wonders aren't just to establish the foundation. Uh, and now that the foundation has been laid, we no longer need any of those supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles. And as you continue to go through this documentary with us, as we walk through all of the various arguments, I think you're going to see that this stuff does not hold water. So if you're interested in getting those notes, I want you to go into the link of the description. I want you to click uh, the email kind of subscription that's going to give us updates on the cessationism documentary. I would encourage you to go check that out. Uh, hit subscribe, like the video if you want to support the channel. There are links in the description to do so. And we will see you next Wednesday when we pick up our series on cessationism at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. See you then. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off these classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.